At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. been driving somewhere and you got to your destination and realized that you had no mental memory of anything happened in the 20 minutes or so that you were driving to wherever you were going, right? My, my guess is if you've had that experience, where you were traveling was someplace familiar, right? When we're in unfamiliar places, right? What are we focused on? We're focused on the destination and the road and every little thing around us because we're trying to figure out where we are. When we're in familiar areas and patterns, we oftentimes can tend to check out, daydream, move on. And so we find ourselves occasionally, uh, I have a bad habit of this, of just getting to places and thinking, I did not even think one second about what happened around me. I just was here. I was into my podcast or whatever, or I was looking at my phone. None of you do that. I know you're, you're good drivers, right? But um, but you just kind of the familiarity can cause you to stop paying attention. I, I don't think that's n not only true in driving. Sometimes that can be true in when we engage God's word. Sometimes we can come to things that are seemingly familiar. And it can cause us at times to not pay attention or not to see the deeper things. But here's the really cool thing about familiar patterns. When you do pay attention in those moments, you actually will see things that you never would have seen otherwise because of your familiarity. Just try it this week. On whatever your commute is, to wherever you go, set yourself at the beginning to say, I'm going to try to notice what's around me on this drive. And I bet you'll actually notice deeper things, things you would never notice because of your familiarity. Scripture can be similar. Today, we're coming to a story that I think most people have some semblance of familiarity with. It's just one of those stories that kind of breathes in the ethos of our culture. I think if you ask most people on the street, Christian, non-Christian, church, non-church, you said, hey, can you tell me a story that's in the Bible? I would probably bet the responses you're going to get are, yeah, there's some story about a boat and this guy who took a bunch of animals. There's some story about some giant, I think his name's Goliath, and someone taking him out. And I think there's a story in there about a guy and some lions, right? It's like one of those stories that people just kind of are familiar with. And because of that, we can come to a text like this and assume that we know what it means, right? Most people will be like, yeah, that's a story about God doing something miraculous. 
But we know the story, but I think because of that, we don't always see how the story actually connects to our lives. But what if there's more? What if a familiar story, when paid attention to, can actually draw us into deeper realities and deeper truths? That's a little bit of what I want to explore today as we lean into Daniel chapter 6. We're concluding this series we've done where we've been looking at the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And these chapters recount the story of Daniel and his companions when they were exiled from their home nation of Israel and brought originally to the capital of the empire of Babylon. And there they were indoctrinated into the king's court, were challenged to assimilate to the Babylonian culture around them, and because of that found at times a clash between what they believed and the God that they followed and the surrounding culture that they were in. And their stories were ultimately recorded to help encourage God's people that wherever we are, we are to be faithful to God despite the cultural pressure around us or the persecution we might face. Daniel's to help remind us God is sovereign over all. His kingdom is above every other kingdom. Therefore, wherever you're at, be faithful to his kingdom. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman, who is one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, he says this about the main theme of the book of Daniel. He says, the author of the book of Daniel not only spoke loud and clear to his generation, but also to ours. In spite of present circumstances, God is in control and he will have the final victory. We've seen that theme time and time again throughout this series. And if you're new, I'd encourage you to go back and hear and kind of follow along where we've been. But that's been the theme. God is in control. His kingdom is sovereign. Therefore, be faithful to that kingdom despite the pressure that you might face or the calls for compromise. And whether it was to King Nebuchadnezzar or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or Belshazzar, that theme has rung true. And today, we're going to see it come once again within the life of Daniel himself. And we're going to be encouraged. Be faithful, brothers and sisters. Be faithful. Because at the end of the day, God delivers. But the reality is, faithfulness for us can often be challenging, especially when we experience cultural pressure. It was challenging for them, and it can be challenging for us. And oftentimes, we can, be, we can kind of wonder deep in our souls, we don't always say this out loud, Maybe compromise isn't the worst thing sometimes. Maybe it's okay. When culture pressure mounts, when consequences seem high, when persecution's at our doorstep, sometimes we wonder deep in our hearts, is faithfulness really worth it? Is it that big a deal? And oftentimes I think we struggle a little bit with that because we don't always see the role that faithfulness can play and how God works and how God moves. But today, the focus of our story is faithfulness, specifically Daniel's faithfulness. And through this story, we're going to see what a life of faithfulness can do. So with that, let's jump in. We'll start to unpack and I'll draw out some points along the way. So chapter 6, we'll start all the way back in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
So the first three verses kind of give us the setting, right? Remind, remember where we were last week. There had been just a major shift in world empire. So up until this point in the story of Daniel and in history, Babylon had been the world empire, dominating the region of the known world at that time. But the rise of the empire of the Medes and Persians came about and overthrew Babylon. And they took power and influence and control over. And we saw last week that Belshazzar, who was the last reigner over the capital city of Babylon, was overthrown and the Medes and the Persians come. And when the Medes and Persians come, there's a change now in the structure of government, right? When, when there's a new coach, you get new coordinators, you get a new setup, and that's similar. There's a new ruler, Darius. Now, the question is, there's not a lot of known history on Darius. We don't have a lot of historical information. And so there's some questions about who was this ruler, this Mede named Darius, some think that what Daniel attests to is that there was a separate ruler, but there's actually some evidence, too, that this could have just been another name for Cyrus, who actually we do know historically was the ruler of Persia for a number of years. In fact, the last verse in Daniel where it references that Daniel prospers under both Darius and Cyrus can actually be read Darius who was Cyrus. It's not super clear in the original language. Either way, we don't really know. We know there's a new empire, and we know there's a new ruler. And that new ruler, in our text, is Darius. And Darius sets up a whole new government structure. So he sets up these 120 satraps. And if you don't know what a satrap is, good. I didn't either. I had to look it up, right? A satrap is just, it's basically a governor. They broke up their empire. Remember, it's a multinational empire. They broke it up into regions and provinces, and they set people in charge of those provinces. Those are the satraps. But over the satraps, they set three, the text calls them presidents or high officials. These were the guys who would reign under Darius, but over the satraps. Daniel is appointed as one of those guys. Now, that's actually not super surprising. Daniel's resume would have set him up to actually be a really good candidate for that position. In part because Daniel's been in Babylon for a while now, several decades. And he was an excellent leader under Nebuchadnezzar and the kings that followed. He had wisdom, he ruled, so he has experience, lots of it at this point. Also, Daniel isn't Babylonian. He's Jewish, so he doesn't have any loyalty to the previous regime. So if you're setting up a new regime, you're going to be like, wait, this guy has a lot of wisdom, he has a lot of experience, and he's not going to be a problem because he's not really loyal to the old guys? That seems like a decent guy to put in charge. And lo and behold, Daniel's really good at his job. It says he has excellence in spirit. And so he's so good at his job that Darius at one point says, you know what, this guy's so much better than all these other guys, I think I just need to put him in charge of everything. And we'll let him kind of lead. But that creates some problems with all the other people. All right, verse 4, then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for the complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdoms, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. 
Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document injunction. Right? So this group of all these other leaders are like, whether they're jealous, whether they want the power for themselves, they look at Daniel and they're like, we, don't, we want to get him and take him down. And they realize that Daniel actually has such exceptional character that they're not going to be able to do that. In fact, if you noted in the reading of the text, the, the author keeps using this word found. They sought to find. They couldn't find. They weren't found. Nothing was found in. In fact, it's repeated over and over and over again. And it's repeated for a reason. Because he wants to laser you in on how faithful and how much of a man of character Daniel was. All right, we prize, when we write today, we prize variety in our writing. So if you're a high school student or college student, what do they tell you? Don't repeat your words. Find new words. Use synonyms. Change them up. That's because we're a written culture, so we praise that. In oral cultures, you actually prize repetition. That's how you remember things. And Daniel was an oral story before it was a written story. And therefore, when the author repeats words, we are like, oh, that seems boring. He's actually trying to get you to pay attention. Notice this guy's character. Notice that when this group of people tried to come against him, they couldn't find any reason. And so they finally said, well, we're going to have to bank on his faithfulness to the law of God in order to get him into a trap. So they go to king, they hash a plan. Let's get you, or let's make a law that everyone who prays has to do it through you, King Darius. Notice, they don't say you can't pray. That's not the law. That would have been political suicide in that day, right? They're, they're a global empire. There are multiple uh, cultures and ethnicities who worship a variety of gods. They're polytheistic, so they have to be wise. If he came on and said, everybody's got to worship Darius, your gods are done, that's done. But what do they do? They say, oh, no, 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 you can worship your god. You just have to do it through Darius, He's now the mediator, right? So your prayers have to go through him. And so they cracked this law trying to catch Daniel. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, note this, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So their trap is set, and in many ways it's successful. Daniel responds to the injunction by doing what he's always done. He goes to pray. Now, this is not an act of defiance by Daniel, right? This isn't Daniel going, you know what? Forget you, king. I'm going to do what I want, right? He's not looking at, at Darius in that way. He doesn't actually think he does anything wrong. He states later in the text, we'll see in verse 22, he says, I was blameless before you. I, I wasn't trying to disobey you. 
I imagine the reality is Daniel's like, well, I don't worship your gods. So why do I need to pray through you? I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to be faithful. And yet, this becomes the avenue through which these men begin to attack him and try to bring him down. The pressure mounts from this collective group. And Darius, it's interesting, he doesn't even seem offended by Daniel's actions. He's like looking for ways to rescue him. He's like, hold on, is this really, wait, this isn't right. No, I couldn't have done that, right? He's like, it says he searches all the thing to try to figure it out. So even he, but this group and their pressure continues to mount until he ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, acquiesce. But this first opening section of the story, I think, highlights a couple things in the reality to Daniel's faithfulness. Remember, that's the theme that continues throughout. First, Daniel's faithfulness actually exposes cultural opposition. When you read through the story, notice, first, where the opposition comes from. It doesn't come from the power or the ruler or the authority. It comes from this collective group whether for perceived jealousy, for wanting their own authority, for whatever, but the text notes over and over again, it's all the presidents, all the satraps, all the rulers, all the authority. It's all this group that comes against Daniel, and they seek to entrap him. And the reality is, nothing, Daniel isn't changed, right? Daniel's the same in the story. The text makes that note. He's a man of character. He practices his faith. He's a man of prayer. But his faithfulness exposes the opposition that stands against him in creating this mediator to try to trap him and ultimately come against him. Many times in the sinful realities of the kingdoms that we inhabit, it's the collective culture that can be the strongest opposition to God's kingdom. And sometimes simple faithfulness exposes those deeper realities. It's not a person. It's so easy for us in our mindset sometimes to try to pin a person, to find an enemy, instead of recognizing sometimes there's collective movements behind the scene that are actually at work that are the strongest opposition to God's kingdom. And we need to be aware of that reality. And oftentimes, Christian faithfulness can help us see that. This isn't just true in Babylon. I think we see this even in our day. And I remember this clicking for me a few years back, probably about a decade um, ago, recognizing the shift that happens in culture where often opposition can be found. It was during President Obama's second inauguration. So as they were preparing for the inauguration, President Obama invited a pastor from Atlanta named Louis Giglio to offer the invocation at that inauguration. Now, true confession, I'm a big Louis Giglio fan. He's had a massive impact on my story. I got to meet him once. Um, and he, it, So when I heard that Louis was going to be praying, I was actually genuinely excited at, uh, at the time. And, uh, but... Lo and behold, during that season, someone, right, some unnamed sources on the internet, our favorite group of people, (laughs) right, went back and dug up old recordings from the early 1990s in which Louis Giglio gave a series of teachings on sexuality. And in those teachings, he taught 
what Christians have held for 2,000 years about human sexuality, that ultimately God designed sexuality for marriage between a man and a woman. That's not new information. Christians have been pretty consistent on that for a long, long time. And Louis had taught this decades before the inauguration. And one of the things, though, that he addressed in that teaching was the issue of homosexuality, and he named it as a sin. This created a firestorm. And suddenly, people were calling for Louis to not pray and coming against the Obama administration. And so ultimately, the decision was made between both Pastor Louis and Obama to have him not give the prayer, and they went and found someone else. And I remember being struck in the moment because I was like, hold on. This, this is really, it was an interesting moment for us. And the reason I bring it up is because in some ways, I think it actually really mirrors what we see here in Daniel 6. On one hand, what was fascinating to me was how much culture had shifted, right? It wasn't the Obama administration. It wasn't the power structure and authority that was coming against Louis. They obviously saw something in him that they wanted to invite in to have him pray. Part of that was they acknowledged because he had done significant work in elevating the issue of human trafficking. But it was the cultural force that behind that began to put pressure, and ultimately they acquiesce, and he, he wasn't. The second thing that I thought was really interesting was four years before it, President Obama's first inauguration, the man who offered the invocation that day was Pastor Rick Warren. And Pastor Rick Warren and Louis Giglio hold the same views on human sexuality. So at that point, I was like, what is going on here? What is at play? This isn't a person. There's some sort of movement. And, and my point in bringing that up is not to get into a debate on that issue. And I know there's lots of dialogue around the issue of homosexuality in our culture and world. It's only for you to notice that sometimes cultural movements are the thing that bring opposition. And when they do, they will follow the same pattern that we see in the text, which is this. They hold up an idol that must be the mediator in order for you to engage and be accepted in the culture. That's what happens. What shifted between 2008 and 2012 was the idol became clear. You will affirm our vision of human sexuality or you will not be welcomed here, right? It, there was no, it, it was like so interesting to me because we're like a tolerant culture, but the traditional value that someone's held for a thousand years suddenly is no longer tolerated. And I'm like, well, can't we at least agree to disagree? Can, can't we at least say, hey, this is what he holds, but we hold a different vision or a different view, right? Like, isn't, isn't that what we talk about? Like, it, that's the reality. But no, 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 no. In, in, Kingdoms that are opposed to the kingdom of God, mediators and idols are held out. And at some point it is, you will bow to this idol. You want to play in this field, then you will embrace this. That's what happened here. That's what these guys, that's the whole plot. They come against Daniel. doesn't matter if Daniel's faithful. We can trap him because we can bring this mediative presence and the reality is, this is always the case. It's not new in our culture. This is always. Christians face this around the world. Bow to the government. Bow to the ideal. Bow to the cultural value. And oftentimes, it's our faithfulness 
that can expose the reality of what's happening underneath and behind the surface. So we shouldn't be surprised. Daniel's not surprised, neither should we. But how does Daniel respond in the first part of the text? He's uncompromising in his character. You see, Christian faithfulness, it cultivates uncompromising character. Daniel refuses to change. He's consistent in his faithfulness to God and his kingdom. And in some ways, that results in the story in both positive and negative realities. Because he's a man of character, because he practices integrity, he's elevated within the kingdom. Right? He's given power and influence. They see his wisdom. They say he's excellent of spirit. But in this moment, it also faces negative consequences when the cultural opposition comes against him. But even then, he's unwilling to compromise. And I think what we see in Daniel is this vision of faithfulness. And that in faithfulness, we cultivate the character within our hearts. The reality is that Daniel, in the text, is the same person publicly and privately. He's constant and consistent. And this is why they think they can get him, because they know this about him. They know he's not going to turn his back on God. He's not going to turn from God's law. So that's the linchpin. That's the way that we're actually going to get Daniel. You see, faithfulness cultivates the sort of character that refuses to compromise. And it cultivates a sort of character that's consistent in public and private. I remember this um, moment several years ago. I was in a, a staff meeting at, a, at my previous church, and the senior pastor at the time, who was a, um, just, I loved, uh, I'll never forget, we were in the middle of the meeting, and he walked over to a whiteboard. Uh, oh, no, sorry, actually, no, he gave it on a piece of paper. I remember, he gave us this piece of paper, and he had two circles on the piece of paper. It looked something like this. And he told us in that moment, he said, you see the inside circle? That's you. That, that's who you actually are. The dotted line around the outside circle is the public presentation of yourself to others. We all do it. We all have the reality of who we are, and then we all have a certain sense in the way in which we present to the people around us. There's a difference between those realities. And his encouragement to that to us that day was he said, be careful of allowing the two lines to get too far apart. You see, character, integrity, is the same whether it's the inner circle and strives to be the same when you're the outer circle. But the reality is, we are often prone in our fallenness and brokenness to portray ourselves one way while not actually cultivating the sort of character privately that we should. If you're just a good Christian when you show up at church, that's not character. I remember several years ago sitting in another teaching in another church, and I heard a pastor say this. He said, I, I think being a pastor has really helped me in my faith. I'm not sure I would be a good Christian if I wasn't a pastor. And I was like, ooh, that scared me as a young pastor. And I thought to myself, if the only reason I follow Jesus and cultivate my life and heart is because of the ministry that I'm in, 
I'm not sure that's good character. I don't want to be that. And I think that should be true for all of us. I think what you see in the model of Daniel is faithfulness pursues that uncompromising character. It tries to bring those lines as close as they can, right? Those lines never touch. There's always a certain aspect to our private and our personal that we do. But what we seek to do in it is we try to cultivate that. That's the reality of what Daniel does. So are you a person of character? Is that your aim? Do you aim for character and integrity? If so, where might you be prone to compromise? What are the areas of your life that you might be prone to give in? Have you turned from those? Do you recognize those? Are you willing to resist if the pressure grows? And then secondly, do you cultivate that? The idea, go back to those circles for a minute, Dave, if you wouldn't. Listen, the idea of those circles is not perfection. That's not the idea. The idea here is not Christian faithfulness needs an EIB perfect and I never sin. No, it's just that you're honest about who you are. It's that who you are in private, you are in public. And you try to be honest. Listen, if no one knows what the actual inner circle of your life is, that's the problem. Not your perception, not your perfection. Whether people actually know you. Daniel was consistent. It's not that Daniel's perfect. You're going to get to Daniel 9, and he's confessing the sins for Israel and himself and all of it. He wasn't perfect, but he was consistent. That's what we have to strive for. And the way he cultivated that was through rhythms and spiritual practices that he was committed to. The culture changed, the temperature changed, but Daniel didn't change. Why? Because he had cultivated his prayer life long before the opposition came. And I think that's an important lesson for us, all of us. You prepare on the mountain for your journey through the valley. I'll say that one more time. You prepare on the mountain for your journey through the valley. Don't forget up to this point how much success Daniel has had in multiple empires. He's in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of his highest officials. He's given robes and money and influence. So much so that the Medes and Persians comes on and it elevates his status to the point where Darius looks at him. He's like, I'm going to make this guy in charge of everything. So he had wealth and status and power and fame. And you could imagine, you could imagine that Daniel at some point in that could have lost track. He could have been like, I don't need God. Look at this. Look at me. Look at my wisdom. Look at who I am. But he didn't. He cultivated consistent three times a day, going into his room, praying before the Lord, practicing spiritual rhythm, pleading for the sake of his people, desiring for God to restore his people back to the promised land. And so when the pressure comes and the culture changes and opposition rises, where does Daniel go? The same place he was. The fire and pressure and valley didn't change him because he had cultivated that when he was in the place of influence. Too often, we're the opposite. We come into the journeys and pains of our life and we're spiritually destitute because when we were at ease, we never took time to actually use that as an opportunity to grow our faith, to practice rhythms, to do things that would help us grow spiritually. 
So we can learn from Daniel in this reality of what it means to actually cultivate character. But we haven't even gotten to the best part of the story yet, so. Verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. So notice the shift in focus here, right? Daniel's going into the pit, but Darius comes and he says, may your God deliver you. So essentially it's like, hey, is God going to show up or not? And then it makes the point, the stone is put over the pit. This is likely some sort of cave or pit, obviously has a small opening. It's covered and then it's sealed with the signet of the king, which if something's sealed with the signet of the king of the world empire, you don't mess with that thing, right? That's the point. If Darius says this stone doesn't get moved, that stone's not getting moved. Which means if Daniel's going to be rescued, there's only one option. God's got to show up and do something. And lo and behold, God shows up. Verse, 20, verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Catch this, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Whew, that's a... So Daniel's delivered, right? A, a miracle happens. God steps in. And you're probably familiar with that part of the story. But did you catch the reasoning behind it? What does Daniel say? I was delivered. Why? Because I was blameless before God and I was blameless before you. And then it goes on to say in the text, because he trusted in his God. So the focus of the text, once again, becomes Daniel's faithfulness. It's Daniel's faithfulness here that results in deliverance. And his faithfulness is contrasted with the unfaithfulness of those thrown into the pit. Where Daniel experiences deliverance, the shutting of the lion's mouth, they experience the harshest reality of what the lion's den meant. But Daniel's faithfulness is the focus throughout the story. Bill Arnold, in his work on the wordplay and narrative techniques in Daniel 5 and 6, makes this note. He says, the irony here is that his enemies, Daniel's enemies, think they have found Daniel's weakness, but the narrator knows they have actually found his greatest strength. Indeed, it is his devotion to God that delivers him from the lions. And so the whole point of the story is to help you see Daniel experiences this deliverance because he is faithful to God. Now, that creates a dilemma for the reader. So let me help you understand who the original audience of Daniel is. 
It's written to Jews who were returning from exile in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. So if you're reading this text, you're like, hold on. If faithfulness is what brings about divine deliverance, we've been a people who's been really unfaithful. And if you read on the story, you're going to get to Daniel 9 where he spends a whole chapter essentially saying that to God. We've sinned against you. We've turned from you. We've been unfaithful to you. We haven't done it. And so the question that's going to linger in your mind is, well, how do we experience deliverance in the reality of our unfaithfulness? And what Daniel's meant to point you towards is there actually is a deliverer that comes in the reality of faithfulness. To look for that faithful one who will bring deliverance not only to the nation of Israel, but to all people. And what happens is if you keep reading the story and you get to what the whole point of the Bible is about, which is Jesus, what you see is what Jesus does is he takes the reality of what we learn in Daniel, that Christian faithfulness does lead to divine deliverance, and he brings that reality to bear par excellence. In fact, the gospel writers go a long way to connect the reality of Jesus' story with the story of Daniel. And you see all sorts of parallels that they draw between the two. Think of Jesus, right? Sinless, blameless, innocent, perfect, ultimately gains popularity among the people as he comes to bring the truth of the ways of the kingdom of God. He exemplifies what it means to live the life that God desires and called for us. But because of that, he's plotted against by a group of leaders and authority who enact a plan to make up a false accusation against him, arrest him, and ultimately then bring him before Pilate, the authority of the day. And what does Pilate say? Well, he's innocent. He didn't do anything wrong, just like Daniel. He's blameless. But what's the choice that Pilate makes in light of the cultural pressure around him? Well, I'll release Barabbas, and Jesus I'll condemn. And ultimately, Jesus then goes to the cross, and there he dies for the sins of humanity. And after his death, he's placed in a tomb. And the gospel writers make the note, that over the tomb is placed a large stone, which no one could move. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And he's buried in the pit with not lions, but the greatest enemy of all, death itself. And yet, how does the story end? Three days later, just like Daniel emerges unharmed from the lion pit, Jesus emerges unharmed from the grave, announcing the greater deliverance that God is bringing. That no one can stop his kingdom, not even death itself. And Jesus then becomes the, the faithful deliverer. And what he begins to proclaim is the good news. That if you put your faith in me, I will cover your unfaithfulness. You will receive my faithfulness. And you then will experience the same deliverance from death and my eternal kingdom. Jesus is the greater Daniel. He brings the greater deliverance. The point of Daniel is not to say, you better figure out how to be faithful if you want to experience deliverance. The point of Daniel is, you're not faithful. None of us are. God's people never have been. Praise God, he sent a greater deliverer to deal with our unfaithfulness so that we can still experience deliverance. How amazing is that? 
And when you see that, when you see what God has done, what it will do is it will shift not only your loyalty, not only your faith in who you follow, but it will lead and spark the awakening of others. And that's what happens at the end of Daniel. What happens to Darius? He's been observing this the whole time. And he sees the mighty work of God. And look how he responds in verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Note the text moves into poetic structure. That's on purpose. It's meant to slow you down and help you see, here's the whole point. Ready? For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. Why? Because he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. You see, it's the deliverance of God that points to the enduring nature of his kingdom. And what greater testimony to the reality of his kingdom is not the deliverance of Daniel from the lions, it's the deliverance of Jesus Christ from death, which speaks to the enduring eternal reality of his kingdom, that it is greater, that it will never end, that all kingdoms will fall before it. And when you see that reality, you see what Daniel's trying to call to you from the very first story till this one is, stay faithful to that kingdom. Don't bow to the other kingdoms. Don't compromise your faith. Jesus is risen from the dead, brothers and sisters. Therefore, you do not have to compromise. Therefore, you do not have to bow to the false powers of this world. You do not have to cater to the devil's schemes or the cultural forces that stand in opposition to God's kingdom. They might have temporary power now. Their plight is fleeting. There is only one eternal king and only one eternal kingdom. Stay faithful to that. Daniel is meant to breed our commitment to Christ, to trust in him and to follow him with full abandon and commitment no matter what pressure comes. And so, as we close our study in the book of Daniel, you certainly don't have to close Daniel. Feel free to read it as much as you want. But as we close the book of Daniel, I think the call that we've seen time and time again and the place I want to bring us back to is, will you stand in commitment with Jesus Christ? At some point, all of us have to resolve ourselves whether we will submit ourselves and surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords who has died for our sins and risen again or whether we will go our own way. And so what we want to do this morning as we close is just invite us, all of us, to that place of commitment. For us to be willing to stand and say, I'm with Jesus. No matter what, no matter what opposition I face, no matter what life throws at me, no matter what shifts change in the culture. Listen, I don't know what 2024 is going to happen. I don't know who's going to be leading America at the end of November. But I'll tell you this, Jesus will still be on his throne. His kingdom will still be eternal you will still have hope and he will still win. So let's be faithful and committed to him. So we're going to sing this song. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. The band's going to come. We're going to sing this song. And it, it starts, it, it's very purposeful. I, we've intended it, Nate and I, very intentional. It starts by reminding you what God has done for you. Faithfulness doesn't start with us. It starts with him. 
but then the bridge leads to a place of us together committing and saying, I'm going to stand with that king. I'm going to follow that savior. And what I want to invite you is to use this song as an opportunity in your heart, maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, to say, that's my king, and I'm going to follow him no matter what happens in my life or this world. So God, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come to each one of us and draw us to that place of conviction and empower us to take that stand to say, I am with Jesus and I will surrender everything to him and his kingdom and his ways. That we might be faithful in our generation. That we might see you work through us for the sake of your glory. God, I just pray for us right now that you wouldn't let any one of us, myself included, leave this place and this room not having at least dealt with the reality of our commitment to Christ. That we wouldn't be in some sort of spiritual malaise or fog. So bring clarity. Call us and convict us. And then empower us, Jesus, to take a stand for you. We invite you to do that work now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.